yes, we need to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We also need to demonstrate it. And we need to find ways to proclaim it in new vocabularies, including the vocabulary of design and architecture. Welcome to the Embedded Church Podcast, where we share stories about reweaving the connections between place, the built environment, and the mission of God. Season four of the Embedded Church Podcast is produced in partnership with the Orman Center at Duke Divinity School. The mission of Orman Center is to foster the imagination, will, and ability of congregations and communities to be agents of thriving. I'm Eric Jacobson. And I'm Sarah Joy Propay, and we'll be your hosts on today's episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Hey, y'all, we're moving into part two of season four. This is the part where Eric and I take to the streets and we interview people who are researching and doing creative things in their communities in regards to shalom, place, and placemaking. We had a lot of fun with our friends at the Orman Center setting up those three key terms in the first few episodes with Josh Yates and Chris Alisara. But now we're bringing in some other voices. So this first episode in this section is with Amy Sherman. She has done a lot of research and writing with churches who are very active in this sphere of thinking about human flourishing and how they're seeking that in their communities. We are really excited, especially to have Amy Sherman as our kickoff guest for part two, because you know we are both uh, big Amy Sherman fans. We've read a lot of her stuff. And right. influenced by her work, but um, I think she does a really good job of what we're trying to do with this second part in taking some of these more abstract concepts like shalom and making them really concrete and practical for us. Um, I really like how she um, has done a ton of research on on churches and other ministries who are seeking the welfare of their communities, and she really documents those stories and places them in particular contexts in particular cities. And I think that just is a really helpful tool for uh, those of us that are trying to uh, take that command to seek the welfare of our cities, uh, to take that seriously and apply it in our own contexts. Definitely. And I think, you know, highlighting the fact that she names particular cities just reiterates what we've been talking about with Wendell Berry and his bucket and that analogy of how a bucket collects local materials to really cultivate a soil that is reflective of the local environment and how that soil is really what is foundational for thriving for the local community. So just needed to make sure that we bring Wendell Berry back onto Always this podcast because you know back how much I love him too. <laughs> right. Awesome. <laughs> well. All right. Well, let's dig in ha, 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 with Amy Sherman. So here we are with Amy Sherman on our podcast today. We're excited to have her be a part of this. So welcome, Amy. Great to be with you guys. Amy, I would just love to start out with you telling our listeners a little bit about your background, kind of where are you based, what do you do, and how did you start on this pathway of researching and writing about this intersection of faith and economics and how that takes shape in various church contexts? So I'm talking to you guys from Charlottesville, Virginia. I've been here since 1989 when I came to the University of Virginia to do my graduate work. I grew up on a small town outside of Buffalo, 
New York. When people ask me about my vocational journey, one of the things I often will point back to is growing up in a, a United Methodist church, I was part of the youth group and we would go each summer and do service in a poor community in Appalachia, in rural West Virginia. And I really have a sense that from that young age, God was calling my life to be about the church and about the poor. And sort of how did those things go together and how should the church address poverty? Um, that was just a real passion and it has never left me. In the past many years, probably the past 25 years, I've been somewhat of a minister to ministries. And really at the heart of my work is to come alongside of churches and faith-based nonprofit organizations that are trying to address issues of poverty and injustice and help them do that work better. Do a lot of writing and teaching and training. I like to shine the spotlight on good examples of what churches are doing. Uh, I work for a think tank called the Sagamore Institute and we talk about putting ideas into action. Your work deals with flourishing. A lot of, I, I see a lot of references to flourishing. How did everything kind of coalesce to that word? I think that really has its roots uh, really in the word shalom. I think I was using the term shalom a lot longer than I've been using the word flourishing. But I've been very captured, of course, as have many believers by this notion that God creates this world of shalom, this world of peace with God, peace with self, peace with others, and peace with the created order. And that the biblical story is about the tragic loss of that peace and then the mission of God in the world to restore uh, that shalom in all of its fullness and the invitation to us as the followers of Jesus to play a little role in that uh, grand project of, of restoration. So flourishing, I guess it was a way of taking a churchy sounding word, shalom, which yeah. required a lot of articulation and explanation and flourishing requires less and is um, maybe more accessible. Yeah, mm -hmm. I love it. Definitely. So you actually have a new book coming out on this topic. And I'd love for you to share with our listeners the title of that book and when that is actually hitting the, the public market. Yeah, I'm not sure it's out yet, waiting. right? The book is called Agents of Flourishing. There's that word again. And the uh, subtitle is Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. And it will be out, Lord willing, early next year. Okay. Maybe Christmas Christmas presents for loved ones, you know. Maybe. And I was like, is there a pre-order list yeah. our guests can sign up for? <laughs> I'm going to sell a bunch right now for yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to uh, see it. And, you know, it's organized by the great work 
um, Josh Yates and, and the good folks at the Thriving Communities Initiative in their whole paradigm of, of thinking about how communities flourish and how there are these six sort of realms of life that they call the community endowments and how in order for a society to really flourish, uh, each of those needs to be strong and healthy and each are contributing and in this very dynamic relationship with one another. And those uh, six realms of life are the good, the true, the beautiful, the just and well-ordered, the prosperous, and the sustainable. And those things kind of map on to uh, institutions and activities that we would all be very familiar with in, in any particular community that we inhabit. So the, the book really tries to encourage churches to pursue shalom in their communities and to take that up by exploring these six different dimensions of life uh, in the community uh, and what flourishing uh, from a biblical perspective uh, for each of those realms of life looks like and how the fall has corrupted those yeah. things and what are the ways that we can be contributing to the repair and the the restoration of wholeness and flourishing uh, in those uh, different realms of society. That's awesome. So, Amy, you write from the perspective of the church being in exile. So tell us a little bit about your, that way of framing the conversation. Yeah, well, I, again, I can't take uh, credit for that insight. I mean, obviously, exile is a huge biblical theme and certainly a, a, a theme in the New Testament. Peter specifically talking about how he's writing to the exiles. But folks smarter than myself have, I think, very helpfully identified uh, ways in which uh, the church in the West, at least in terms of its social location, is in a sense in exile. So this notion of the church in exile really has at least two layers to it. Um, the most fundamental layer is the general principle of biblical truth that all of the followers of Jesus, uh, we are exiles because we are members of this heavenly city, uh, members of this kingdom of God, which is not yet here in all of its fullness. And so as we sojourn in the earthly city, uh, we, we are exiles and strangers. But then in terms of the last decades uh, in the West, the recognition by theologians and uh, sociologists and other commentators that um, the church, if it once had a more central position within the culture and within society, is now more marginalized. Yeah. And in that sense, there are commentators who liken our present moment to the situation of the exiles in Babylon when the Israelites were taken into captivity and recognizing that, strangely enough, the Lord's instruction to those exiles uh, was actually to seek the peace and prosperity of those strange neighbors yeah. Uh, even though they themselves were foreigners in this land. Yeah. And you're offering maybe a third option to those who feel a need to um, attack and retreat. 
does that population of, of folks wanting that third way exist? Or are you trying to persuade people to give up on, on those other two strategies that maybe aren't as, as helpful? From my very limited vantage point, I am encouraged by the growth of the third way folks, uh, if we could call them that. I don't necessarily have a full picture of what's going on in all the different arenas of the church. From my limited vantage point, I am encouraged that I sense a growing enthusiasm for that perspective, a, a growing desire for the church to take a humble posture of service and, and being for the community, even while we are still faithful to retain our unique kind of ethical distinctiveness. Um, my book is really more written to those who desire to live into that posture of seeking the shalom of their community, but who are looking for some practical handles on how to do that, as well as some handles for how to think deeply about it and how to articulate that vision in a compelling way to folks, you know, around them who may or may not be as uh, inclined uh, towards that, towards that posture. The endowments that Amy lays out are somewhat similar to social determinants, a term we've discussed previously on the podcast. Social determinants is the term that sociologists use to capture the idea that a person's physical flourishing is linked to a variety of factors such as social connections and access to green space. Amy's endowments draw in a deeper biblical understanding of the holistic order created by God to bring ultimate flourishing to humankind. As a pastor, I'm intrigued with what you're saying. And I, I agree. Can you maybe help us tease out some idea of how to be a church in exile without completely capitulating to a progressive agenda? How do we be in exile without sort of giving in, like holding on to our distinctives as a Christian community? Part of it is simply a continual rehashing of the human and the nature of the human. So to argue for inherent human dignity, to argue for life, to argue for creatureliness and the reality of our limits as human beings. I mean, it just strikes me that the Christian position is always so interestingly uh, neither this nor that, but something else. Uh, and if you if you're a Tim Keller fan, that's a common way that you know he'll say, "Well, you know, the West thinks this, and the East thinks this, but Christianity says this. You know, the right thinks this, and the left thinks this, but Christianity argues, you know, something sort of different." I think to the progressives, Christianity is able to say, "Hey, great that you recognize the wonderful diversity." And the dignity all the of these different cultures and the need to celebrate all the races and the need to absolutely defend the quality and the dignity of all people. And Christianity is right there behind you. But you also fail to uh, recognize with appropriate humility the, the position of the human in the rest of, of the cosmos and that there is a greater intelligence and there is a God 
and that there are absolute moral truths that that we need to hold on to in order to to guard that human dignity. So trying to make arguments centered in concepts that the progressives embrace about flourishing and, and human dignity, while, while also trying to say, if we live out some of the extreme philosophical positions of liberal thought, we will actually lose these very precious things that you want to hold on to. Um, about community and about relationships. So part of it is finding ways to engage in the conversation with folks on the left that embrace some of the shared goals and yet raise warning flags about the dangers. And then, of course, there's just the, the simple reality of we've got to live it, right? I mean, we, I mean, what's what's been so lousy <laughs> what we've done so poorly in general is actually living out all of our convictions right and so we have not as believers adequately shown what it is to embrace and protect and celebrate human dignity we haven't defended the vulnerable we haven't stood up for the unincluded, we haven't had the humility to admit our failings. To live in this sort of third way, we have to think very carefully about the prevailing cultural ideas and wins and trying to excavate those and raise the warning flags where that is necessary. But then also just model the way of the beautiful. Right. It actually show actually marriage can be really, really beautiful. And right. it can last yeah. a long time. Yeah. And and the relationships between people of, of different colors can actually be really beautiful and mutual and serving one another. And but we've got to embody it and model it and demonstrate it. But I'd be curious to hear from you if you have some examples of churches who have really pressed into that. Um, that you could share with us to give us an idea of where you've seen that light and that flourishing really take place in a community, in a church? Yeah, the funnest part of writing the book was trying to identify congregations that really have kind of taken up a piece of the task of contributing to the flourishing in each of those six different realms of life or these community endowments that I mentioned earlier. So for each of those six spheres of life, I tell stories about particular congregations. So for example, in the chapter about the just and well-ordered, I talk about a church in the Grand Rapids area that has really taken up in a very robust way the, the mantle of the biblical idea of restorative justice. So there's an educational piece to that. So there's a great deal of just helping folks in the church and in the community to understand the criminal justice system and understand some of its uh, deficiencies and reveal the beauty of the restorative justice paradigm. 
uh, from scriptures. There's an advocacy piece whereby folks are encouraged to actually be involved in very practical ways in uh, lobbying state government to make various reforms. And then there's a real direct ministry whereby they have helped prisoners behind the walls who know Christ to launch their own church behind the walls and support that and and come in and and worship with those uh, brothers behind bars, as well as um, re-entry work. So helping folks who have come out of prison to uh, find employment and find uh, housing and get connected to supportive relationships. It seems like a more holistic approach to that, right? Like kind of every step of that process being involved and understanding how that works. Absolutely. And then I think about a church not far from uh, where I live in Richmond, Virginia. There's a church called East End Fellowship, and they're actually also in that just and well-ordered chapter. But what they have really done is focus on uh, racial justice and racial healing. They've been really faithful in the very long, very hard road of continually pressing in to this work of reconciliation. And it is a painful work. (laughs) And and they have been very faithful in that. But I have other, uh, you know, stories and other chapters. There's a whole story about a group of churches that kind of collected together to uh, really try to decrease the divorce rate in their county through all kinds of marriage strengthening initiatives. Yeah. That's kind of the main story I tell in the in the chapter on the good. The funnest part of the book was finding and learning stories. So Eric and I, as you know, are kind of geeks about the built environment. <laughs> Yes, urban nerds yeah <laughs> <laughs> we're out measuring sidewalks all the time and right. you know, want to know if they're wide enough so of course we're very curious if you have some property specific examples that you could share as well in terms of actual property development that a church has done for the good of their neighborhood well i have learned so much from both of you and In the section of the book on the community endowment of the sustainable, I actually talk about the new urbanism and talk about some examples from the past of ways Christians have been involved in that. Probably the one I go into the most detail about is a church called Grace Chapel, which is located outside of Cincinnati, and they have an amazing uh, campus They bought many years ago what was at the time a real eyesore in their local community. It was an old shuttered manufacturing plant that I believe was a tool and dye facility. And it had a very prominent location on one of the main streets. Uh, And so the city leaders were really quite excited when (laughs) we wanted to take it on and engage in this very lengthy uh, process of applying uh, a massive amount of elbow grease to uh, revitalizing that that property. But from the beginning, it was the vision of the church founders 
to to have this entire campus be very alive to the community. Uh, they wanted it to be a campus where there would be um, kind of a 24-7 presence. It was a vision that wanted to see the various buildings be utilized in ways that would benefit their neighbors. So one of the larger buildings, for example, for many years, they transformed that into a thrift store Mm -hmm. that also housed a nonprofit food ministry. And it was a really well thought through food pantry because rather than being the kind of traditional You go in and you're kind of embarrassed and somebody gives you a box of food or a bag of food. They set it up more like a little grocery store. Yeah. Uh, There's actually carts and people could just kind of go through and, you know, shop for the things that they needed. That was called the New to You Thrift Store. And it was one of several businesses that they have placed on that property. And they benefited the community not only by providing uh, affordably priced goods, but but also they were interested in, uh, you know, providing jobs for folks that needed sort of second chance type jobs. They have uh, a very impressive sort of indoor sports arena that they make available to all kinds of community groups that come in to do, you know, indoor soccer and yeah. uh, summer soccer leagues. More recently, they have created a, a beautiful co-working space called uh, the Orca Center, and uh, it provides a place for folks without their own offices to come in and work. And that's been, you know, a real community thing. So there's an example, I think, of really thinking through, okay, we have this property, we have these buildings, how can we turn these buildings into buildings that offer people uh, real opportunities? That's a church that has thought through, uh, I think, very well. I also talk in the chapter about beauty, Mm -hmm. uh, about a really neat church in Kansas City, Christ Community Church downtown. They also have been very wise and generous in the use of their building. They deliberately are located in one of the arts districts in downtown Kansas City. And they basically co-located an arts gallery in the same space with the church. So they have a really wonderful art gallery called the Four Chapter. And it's a place for emerging artists to be able to showcase their work and and talk about their work. uh, And a place for people in the congregation to learn to be arts patrons. Yeah. I think in all of these ways, what these churches are doing, they're allowing their space to talk, right? They're allowing their space to say certain things about them. We love welcome. (laughs) We are hospitable. Uh, We are for life and celebration. We are for beauty. We are for creativity. We are for uh, the creation of of new wealth. We are for opportunity. They're saying all these things with their own physical space. Um, And going back to what we said before about demonstration, yes, we need to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We also need to demonstrate it. And we need to find ways to proclaim it in new vocabularies, including the vocabulary of design and architecture. Right, right. Yeah, and then I always tell churches, what message does your property send to your community? 
And I also often say it might be well kept and clean, but it could be really boring. (laughs) And so sometimes that well kept property actually conveys there's not life happening here unintentionally. But what if you had some more art or gardens or things that conveyed more there's life and there's beauty happening here yeah i love looking at your website sarah joy and just seeing the stories that you have found particularly of how churches have used some of their outside space to create places for contemplation and yeah and places for play right and, yeah and uh and just that green space that often in, in an urban setting is is really precious right Yeah. And I think play is so important. And I think we've forgotten how to play as a society. Even I think about C.S. Lewis and his writings about merriment and play and how important that is. And but how important it is to be done with the true understanding of human dignity and how much substance that gives to that play. And so if the church can model that, I think that that is so compelling for our culture. We're doing a community uh, ping pong tournament um, here on <laughs> Friday. Awesome. So nice. excited about that. And I think that one of the things I've realized too is that sometimes I think people will say, what about the sort of the sacred? You, you yeah. know, there's this sort of sense of, well, gosh, if everything's just multi-purpose use and, you know, yeah, we see the pragmatic value of that, that, oh, isn't it nice that the food bank can be like located right there? But there's a sort of concern about, are, are we losing something? I, I think about a church, um, for example, in, in Indianapolis that, like the one in Kansas City, shares space with an arts ministry. And so there are art gallery spaces in that church, and there are studios for artists down in the basement of the church. And yet there's also a really, really beautiful sanctuary that has embraced its historic style, and there's beautiful stained glass Sacred space can can also be community serving space, right? Because we all have a need and a hunger for the sacred, uh, and particularly in our overly hyper fast, overwhelmingly visual, busy, busy, busy culture. It's not only believers that can find solace in what we would call sacred space, but the availability of sacred space to those who do not know God and yet hunger for quiet and hunger for reflection and hunger for stillness. And there, I think the challenge is for churches to share that sacred space, right? To to go ahead and, and protect it and say, well, no, we don't actually want to take this quote unquote sacred space and make it and anything goes multi-purpose space. Uh, We want to keep it for these sort of special purposes, but then to share that (laughs) so that others can also find those places of solace. Yeah, I agree. That's beautiful. When Amy refers to Sarah Joy's work, she's talking about Proximity Project, and in particular, a resource that Sarah Joy developed called Redemptive Placemaking Toolkit, which is a really helpful tool that churches can use to help figure out how to better engage their neighborhood. I recommend it highly, and if any of our listeners are interested in finding out about it, they can find information about it on our website. One of the things that I've heard you say from time to time, Amy, and every time I hear it, I'm like, three cheers! (laughs) 
<laughs> is you encourage churches to be risk takers. And I love that. So talk to us about being a risk taker. How do you manage that conversation with churches? Because that so quickly becomes one of the default hurdles to these types of things. You know, I just think you cannot get away from Jesus's own commendation uh, of risk taking. It strikes me that uh, there is a boldness about Christ in taking risks that he took himself, the fact that he sent his disciples out and said, don't take a purse or a staff with you. That had to have been a little bit uh, intimidating, you know, even in a very hospitable culture. And then, of course, the, the stories of the parables, what is held up, you know, the folks that had 10 talents and five talents and they risked them and they invested them and they made more. What are we warned against? Well, hoarding and protection of everything. And of course, there's the very challenging scriptural principle that without faith, it is not possible to please God. And it strikes me that faith inherently requires risk-taking. How else do you really prove yourself to be trusting in another if, if there's not some level at which you are taking risks. And <laughs> I find it risky even saying some of those things because I thought, I think, oh, goodness gracious, tonight as I'm having my evening prayer time, the Lord's going to be like, and where are you trusting me? I got to preach this message to myself. But it, it strikes me that it's just simply inescapable all throughout yeah. the scriptural narrative. And I think Jesus in his wonderful gentleness allows us to start small, right? Yeah. And I think there is a, a mandate. This is not optional. You must take risks. You must step out. And yet it is coupled with this wonderful gentleness of you can start small. You can put your toe in the water. I will be there. This is part of the maturation process. We grow to trust more and then we risk more. And God shows up in his great faithfulness. And we trust more and we risk more and God shows up in his great faithfulness. Or he appears not to show up and we are disappointed and astounded and flummoxed. And yet over time, he turns it around for good. And eventually we get to that part where we are able to say, even in this, he was faithful and some kind of risk-taking muscle on the inside of us has been strengthened in a sense, even, even further by the spirit. I think it's Gary Haugen from International Justice Mission says something along the lines of like, a, he knows of no other pathway of discipleship than taking risks. The church is so bored trying to be safe and it's yeah. stagnating because of it. And I've got a follow-up to that. One of the goals for our fourth season is we want to help pastors ask better questions. We feel like the questions they ask and their assumptions about what success looks like are sometimes not fully biblical. You know, how do I grow my church? How do I make budget? How do I keep our people happy? Those are the typical questions. What what questions do you wish pastors would ask? Most of the kinds of questions I'm encouraging them to ask have to do with what is God doing in this community? Where is he at work? Who is part of that? 
how could you be involved? I also think it's very important for churches to ask the question, what has God placed in our hands? God has given each congregation uh, manifold gifts and calls us to steward those gifts uh, well. And yet we don't always take the kind of intentional, careful, comprehensive inventory of what those gifts and assets really are. So I like to ask churches, what has God placed in your hands? Do you even know? And what do you know about the gifts of your people? Uh, Your most important asset are all these wonderful people sitting here and Who are they and what are their passions and what are their experiences and what are their uh, fields of of expertise and and their skill sets and how can these things be deployed? I like to challenge churches to ask the question sort of programmatically, what are we currently doing that essentially just benefits us, but that with some creativity, we could reframe in some ways so that it not only benefits us, but also benefits others. Um, I also think that churches can encourage uh, folks by facilitating uh, the development of guilds. So helping people who all are working, for example, in the healthcare industry, you know, maybe having a special event for those folks over the course of a weekend where they can gather together And um, iron will sharpen iron as they talk about how do they live into their calling uh, as a nurse, as a radiologist, as a physical therapist, as a public health uh, official. Uh, How do they proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God in and through their uh, daily work? And how can they encourage one another as as they labor in, in a similar field? And some churches have, I think, taken this, you know, even further. I mean, they have started uh, little mini grant programs where folks that have a particular idea of how to be an agent of flourishing in and through their sphere, and they have a project they want to do, uh, and providing encouragement uh, in the form of, of some financial support for that, helping people recognize Hey, uh, your 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 spiritual life is a seven day a week thing, and God cares about your work. And in fact, your work is a school of spiritual formation. And in fact, your work is an avenue for your participation in the mission of God in the world. In fact, what you're out there doing on Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock uh, as an architect, as an artist, is also the church on mission uh, and be intentional about that. Yeah, that is great. We have a lot of resources, I think, that we can point people towards and your books being some of those. And I'd love to hear from you if there are a few specific ones that you would like to share with our listeners that you feel have been very helpful to you in your own journey of exploring these topics. Well, I'm a big fan of Andy Crouch. And uh, Culture Making was a particularly important book in shaping my thinking. I'm also a big N.T. Wright fan and um, have found his books to be just so theologically uh, robust. Uh, 
uh, and certainly have helped me develop a, a kingdom-sized uh, gospel. Also a fan of uh, the Chalmers Center and Brian Fickard and his most recent book, Becoming Whole, is a really terrific uh, reflection uh, about shalom and about uh, how the church can be involved in enhancing shalom at home and abroad. Awesome. Eric, any last questions on your end? I was just thinking if a church is just kind of getting their eyes open to this idea of contributing to community flourishing, what would you recommend as some first steps to kind of get started? I try to talk about that in the very last chapter of the book. And um, really the first two steps I talk about, one of which I've, I've already mentioned, which is this notion of asset mapping your own congregations, helping churches to, again, in a very deliberate, comprehensive way to think about their physical assets, uh, their monetary assets, uh, the vocational power and assets of their people, their relational assets and networks that they're part of in the community, uh, and really think hard and well about what are all these gifts that God has placed into their hands and to literally kind of count them <laughs> and then really think through that question of, well, which of these assets are we deploying only for our own benefit? And how could we create them to be more externally facing? And how could these various assets serve our community more? That's the first step. And the second step is quite similar in that it involves really trying to do the same kind of asset mapping or taking an inventory of the assets of their local community. Um, it might be a neighborhood that the church is particularly interested in serving. It might be a, a, a population group, whether it's uh, the residents of a particular geographic community or whether it's the people within a particular people group. God has placed giftings uh, into their hands as well. Uh, and so to find out um, what are their assets, what are their talents, what is God already doing uh, among them, who are the leaders, and beginning to have conversations about, well, how might the, the gifts and assets of the church be brought alongside the gifts and assets uh, of those that the church desires uh, to minister among, and how together could all those assets be brought to accomplish something that, that neither community could have done uh, on its own for the flourishing uh, of, of all. Awesome. Thank you. Well, this has been delightful. You've given us a lot to chew on. You have done some great research and having some great examples that you've cultivated over the years. So we appreciate you being willing to spend some time with us and distill some of that for our listeners. Yeah, and I've got agents of flourishing on uh, on my Christmas list already. So uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so free order. Thank you both very much <laughs> for your work and for being interested in that. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah thank definitely. you, Amy. It's been great. For this episode's Ormond Coda, I have two thoughts. One is about Dr. Sherman herself. As I listened, I heard a humble thoughtful, and inspiring agent of God's shalom. There is a third way of Christian cultural engagement besides attack or retreat. To quote Eric, Amy epitomizes the Christian character and winsome boldness of a growing community of third-way Christians 
animated by the truth expressed in Jeremiah 29. I can't wait to read Amy's book with that wonderful title, Agents of Flourishing, Pursuing Shalom in Every Corner of Society. Why and how can we be agents of flourishing? Because by God's grace, we are also recipients of and participants in the shalom we are called to be the very agents of in every corner of society. That's such an energizing biblical truth, which Amy leads us into in this episode. The other thought I have pertains to the shout out she gives Josh Yates, the director of the Omen Center. Amy shone a spotlight on the human ecology framework he developed, which we at the Omen Center used to help us to understand and envision cities, towns, and places. As Amy mentioned, the human ecologies of a city contain and depend upon an array of different but fundamental endowments, the true, the good, the beautiful, the prosperous, the just and well-ordered, and the sustainable. To dig deeper into these endowments for a healthy community, go to the Omen Center's studio for placemaking. You'll find a bunch of resources, case studies, and videos that will be well worth your time exploring. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Embedded Church Podcast. Be sure to check out the episode show notes for links to resources and other helpful information related to this episode. If you'd like to connect with us to share comments or ideas about the work we're doing, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at embeddedchurch.com or leave a voice message on our feedback line by dialing 760-527-3260. Follow us on Instagram at Embedded Church Podcast or visit our website, www.embeddedchurch.com. Finally, thank you to our season four partners at Orman Center and to all of our faithful listeners and supporters who have helped us make it to season four. We are honored and encouraged. Until next time, be well.